using this podcast for the BJSM community and it may be the second podcast you're listening to with Professor Francis O'Connor from the Uniformed Services and Health University and we'll jump straight into it. Francis, you've got a lot of experience in the military and in heat and in exertional rhabdomyolysis. Why don't you begin by telling us what exertional rhabdomyolysis is? Yeah, exertional rhabdomyolysis is, uh, just as the name says, it's breakdown of muscle um, with exercise. Um, and, of course, the, the real concern with exertional rhabdomyolysis or breakdown of muscle into the systemic circulation is the consequences, and, and the consequences is what we, we worry about, which is the release of um, some of the intracellular contents into the systemic circulation, whether it's... Um, what we all think about creatinine kinase or myoglobin, but also potassium. Um, so it's those metabolic uh, consequences that we worry about with exertional rhabdo. And I'm going to take a real rookie approach here because I'm not knowledgeable about rhabdo at all, and I'm going to try and say it properly, rhabdomyolysis. So is it something that just happens in hot weather or can it happen on a cold day in the right circumstances? Oh, well, absolutely. If you were to take a, you know, look at a classic internal medicine text, I mean, the, the number of causes of exertional rhabdomyolysis is, um, or rhabdomyolysis in general is legion. Um, the list is long. But in terms of exertion, um, exertion can be straightforward. It, it can be the, uh, the intensity, the duration of the exercise that might be novel that contributes, and that can be in the hot weather or it can be in the cold weather. Uh, obviously, we think of exertional rhabdo um, as well as a um, kind of a comorbid problem with exertional heat illness, exertional heat stroke in particular. Uh, that can be a consequence of the exercise or it can be a consequence of the heat uh, with direct injury to the muscle. So it's, it's important to know that, you know that exertional rhabdo can be exercise alone or comorbid with, um, with uh, exertional heat stroke. Can it sneak under people's radar? Uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it really shouldn't sneak under people's radar. If you had an exertional rhabdo event, more often than not, that patient is going to have soreness or stiffness that is out of proportion uh, to what that athlete would think is normal soreness or delayed onset muscle soreness. This would strike them. Uh, it would be something, you know, again, associated with unusual soreness, unusual stiffness or weakness. Now, occasionally, Karim, you can see patients who may not have uh, that profound soreness or weakness, and they'll present with a consequence, such as um, the myoglobinuria, where you might present with uh, part of the other triad, which would be dark urine, Coca-Cola urine. More often than not, the Coca-Cola urine that would appear is going to be associated with the, uh, the pain and weakness, but on occasion it can occur that you don't have profound weakness and you just have dark urine. So either way, you know, the athlete is going to give you something. When's it most prevalent? Who should be looking out for it? People who take care of big races um, in addition to the military settings? You know, it's not uncommon um, for rhabdomyolysis, exertional rhabdo, to be associated with big races. Um, however, you generally aren't going to see it in the finish line tent. You know, exertional rhabdomyolysis is normally going to be peaking uh, 24 to 72 hours after the exertion. 
So these patients are going to be presenting to clinicians a day or two after the event. I think the more common scenario, Karim, at least what we see in the military, is going to be in the uh, uh, training period, uh, basic training or uh, an introduction to uh, new training. Maybe someone's going to be going in the special operations community. So you have a new and novel exercise. They are not adequately exercised, acclimatized to the event, and that is where we most commonly um, are going to see rhabdo. In addition to new training that's novel, um, we've also seen and certainly seen in the literature, I know you've seen this, Krim, where you get an aggressive coach um, who introduces a new training technique. There are cohorts all over the country, whether it was the University of Iowa uh, study. Uh, there was a breakout in Oregon doing uh, triceps dips. It was squats in Iowa, um, where you've got a coach who's the leader, who is leading kids uh, to, again, novel exertion where they are pressed to perform. So these athletes are not listening to their bodies, and they're, you know, they're overdoing it. They're overexerting. Uh, I think it's a reflection not of the novel exercise, but poor leadership. Can you share one case that maybe worked out okay, hopefully, but um, potentially also a second case where it can be life-threatening, right? Yeah, it can. It, it, unfortunately, it can be life-threatening. Um, most of the time, and I know Randy Eichner uh, used to preach this all the time, exertional rhabdo uh, will not kill you most of the time. We recently um, analyzed a small cohort in a group of cadets in a reserve officer training corps or ROTC unit up in upstate New York. These young men and women were subjected to a uh, very aggressive exercise program Again, kind of the hallmark being an aggressive leader, and these kids were pushing because they felt it was important for their careers, that resulted in nearly 35% of these young men and women being put in the hospital for the management of exertional rhabdomyolysis. Um, now, all of these young men and women um, did well over time. However, you're talking about the longest hospitalization being 12 days, which is not insignificant when you're in college. Um, Randy Eichner, as I had mentioned, talks about exertional rhabdo rarely um, resulting in death. However, if exertional rhabdomyolysis is associated as a consequence of an exertional collapse associated with sickle cell trait, that can indeed kill you. And unfortunately, there are a number of cases in the civilian community and in the military where exertional rhabdo accompanied by sickle cell trait has resulted in a uh, in fatal exercise collapse associated with sickle cell trait. And the sickle cell rate is quite high in American football players in college, right? Yeah. Um, the sickle cell trait population um, in American football players and in the American military yeah, is relatively high. Um, you know, you talk about our population, um, our African-American population in the military is going to be very representative and about 9 to 10% of that population will be sickle cell trait positive. One of the questions, Krim, we are trying to answer, uh, which concerns me greatly, is um, trying to identify which of those African Americans who are sickle cell trait positive may be at risk for a fatal complication of exertional rhabdo, because certainly 
we are not seeing, and I know you are not seeing, that all African Americans with sickle cell trait have a fatal exertional rhabdo. One of the questions that, that I wonder about and our research is pursuing is, is there an individual with sickle cell trait who may be more at risk than another? You know, is there, is there another marker associated with sickle cell trait that might identify the individual at greater risk? Or are all African Americans with sickle cell trait at the same risk of this relatively rare event? But this is a question uh, that certainly concerns me. Extra resources for the person interested in sickle cell in sport. Absolutely. Um, sickle cell in sport and screening for sickle cell trait and what to do about the sickle cell trait athlete is an active area of controversy in the literature. Uh, we've published on this in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise uh, as we had a summit on uh, sickle cell trait in athletes and in the military. And some of our other colleagues, uh, Kim Harmon, uh, has also written on sickle cell trait. I think uh, all of us agree that uh, sickle cell trait is associated with this uh, rare fatal collapse uh, with extreme exercise thought to be secondary to an explosive rhabdomyolysis. I think the questions that are out there are uh, screening. I certainly believe every athlete should know who or what what their condition is. Am I sickle cell trait positive or not? I think the controversy in the literature right now, Corinne, is who else should know? Uh, should it be the coach? Should it be the trainer? Should it be the medical team? Um, who has a right to know your genetic information? Um, this is not only controversial in the sports medicine community, it's controversial in the American military. Um, in the Army, um, uh, we currently do not screen for sickle cell trait. We utilize universal precautions for all athletes trying to leverage heat acclimatization, exercise acclimatization, and treat all collapses the same um, and be safe and, and, of course, manage hydration. The, uh, the other services, um, the Navy and the Air Force, do screen and will actually mark or identify uh, those athletes with sickle cell trait so that others in, that, in the population will know that if they collapse, that uh, you've got to do something different for that athlete. Um, this is an active uh, area of controversy, as I've mentioned, and uh, we're trying to work it out with good science to try to give good evidence-based recommendations that still uh, provide great medical care but protect people from their, uh, their individual health information. And is that a preview of a session you've got at the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine annual meeting in San Diego in May 2017? You know, I'm going to be talking about um, exertional rhabdomyolysis with regards to trying to identify that individual at high risk um, that you need to work up because that's the person who may be at greater risk. I will be talking a little bit about sickle cell trait, uh, but more than anything, Krim, I'm going to try to identify who's the outlier. For clinicians like you and me, who's the kid with rhabdo that you need to worry about? that you need to think about that may need a little bit more thought and work up or discussion with a specialist before you return them to play. Uh, because are you like me, Karim? I know I'm always, uh, you know, I want everybody to get out there and return to play. But as we talked about earlier in the last podcast, I have a mission to deal with in the military, and I, I can't make the wrong decision where that athlete not only puts himself at risk, but the team at risk and the mission. So 
it's a it's a big concern for me. What's the role of genetics? I think the role of genetics is evolving with um, with exertional rhabdomyolysis. I can tell you, you know, Karim, in my experience working uh, up in a tertiary care referral center, that uh, 95% of those patients that are referred uh, to our referral center who have had recurrent rhabdo, um, our workups are unremarkable. And we will do genetic workups to assess for myopathies, um, such as a CP2 deficiency, McArdle's disease, AMD deficiencies, uh, so really how you metabolize proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. We will do that evaluation on our high-risk cases. The yield on that is extremely low, that most people, again, are unremarkable. We also, Karim, in, in our center up at Uniform Services University working with Walter Reed, if it is an unexplained uh, exertional rhabdomyolysis, and again, most of them I can explain, um, doing something you know too fast, too soon, or a nutraceutical, whatever it may be. But in unexplained, in addition to using genetics, as I just described, we use a, a panel, Karim, a very specific panel called the Exercise Intolerance Panel that screens for most of the myopathic conditions. Um, we also do some genetic testing uh, looking for ryanidine receptor defects, um, uh, believing that there is a link uh, between exertional rhabdo, malignant hyperthermia, and exertional heat stroke. Uh, so we have uh, a number of genetic uh, markers that we will use for ryanidine receptor um, mutations. And if those come up positive, obviously that's going to identify uh, you know, a high-risk case for me. But I can't overemphasize enough, Karim, that uh, being referred to a tertiary care center uh, for referral, most of our cases are absolutely unremarkable. It's the minority of cases that we're using genetics. Um, but if you're unexplained and I don't have a good indication, that's what I'm doing. You know, we are considering genetics and we're trying to work out high-risk markers. If you've had exertional rhabdo once, you're more vulnerable to get it again? It depends on the nature of what led to your exertional rhabdo. Uh, I see a young soldier, warfighter coming in who's had an exertional rhabdo. I am going to go back to their exercise history. Well, again, one, was this a a new uh, novel exertion, were they overdoing it? I love to hear that uh, because if it's new and novel and they were overdoing it, I, I'm already on the trail of uh, uh, a good explanation they were not exercise acclimatized. If the young man or woman related that they were taking a nutraceutical, in particular nutraceutical with sympathomimetic uh, characteristics to it, I'm very happy because now again I've got an explanation uh, that potentially this is contributing. If on the other hand, it's someone who has never had a problem or this occurred on a low exercise load. Um, now we've got a problem. Uh, that concerns me when I don't have an explanation. Normally what we will do, Karim, is uh, with warfighters, we will give them up to strike two. So you've got your first rhabdo uh, event. We will rehab them, let them recover, uh, and then let them return to duty. Um, I've already mentioned some of the hallmarks. Um, I like to see resting CKs, uh, resting creatinine kinase get down below 1,000. I think that's something that uh, listeners should be aware of. If you've got a resting CK after two to four weeks of rest that's over 1,000, uh, you've got a problem. That's, that's something that raises my, uh, my antenna. Um, and if you've got strike two, uh, that raises my antenna that this is someone that may need to be worked up, in particular if I don't have a good explanation. 
We talked earlier about the sickle cell trait athlete. Um, kids with sickle cell trait have rhabdo, and they have heat stroke just like everybody else. But if it's a, a sickle cell trait uh, young man or woman where it was explosive with CKs that are now getting up into the hundreds of thousands, well over two, 300,000, we've seen some kids in the millions, that's got my attention. Uh, that now this is a sickle cell trait athlete that has shown me something different, and, and that's a young man or woman that I worry about. Um, and I've got to make a very difficult call, and I'm going to make that call in conjunction with probably my, uh, my hematology team. Do you have a reference where listeners can follow up on a paper, Fran? Yeah, uh, uh, Karim, we actually we wrote this up. This was in uh, Current Sports Medicine Reports, um, we titled it Exertional Rhabdo, um, Identification and Evaluation of the Athlete at Risk for Recurrence, which is what you and I have just been talking about. And, and again, this is in current sports medicine reports. I had one of my fellows at the time, uh, Michelle Shapanik. Uh, she was the lead author. I was the senior author on the paper. Uh, this was published in uh, 2014. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks for your time today, Fran. I have to get going and really appreciate your wisdom on this complicated topic. Uh, again, a privilege, Karim. I look forward to seeing you at AMSSM. That will be fun, and people can approach you. It's a great meeting for friendliness and informality, and uh, you and all the speakers are very accessible at that meeting in San Diego in May 2017. Thanks again for listening to this podcast, and we encourage you to share how easy it is to access the 270 BDSM podcasts by the app or links, but it works really well on the app, as many of you know. BJSM mobile app. Hope you get a chance to have a physical active day. Thanks for listening.